Hello and welcome to the History of the Copts, Episode 20, John's Prophecy. Before going on this week's episode, I wanted to sort of give you guys an idea on what is to come. The bonus episode about monasticism will be done once we finish with the narrative of Pope Zoophilus, which should be in about two weeks. After that, we will get to Pope Cyril. His narrative will be quite long and will take us multiple episodes to go through. When that finishes, I will do another bonus episode about everyday life in Byzantine Egypt. Now, that is a big topic, so if there is a specific thing you want to hear about, reach out to me, either by email at gadly0123 at gmail, or through Twitter or through Facebook. A History of the Copt podcast search would easily lead you there. Potential topics I am thinking about are things like education, law, economy, and gender. Now, last week we have finished going through the geopolitical and the social background of the reign of Pope Zeophilus. In a period post the massacre of Thessalonica, Theodosius's edicts progressively became anti-Bagan. He was re-accepted by the church by St. Ambrose on Christmas of 390 AD, and by February he was leaving Milan and on his way back to Constantinople. The West was left to Valentinian, Trull as a figurehead, with power resting in a pagan barbarian general named Arbogast. Arbogast was a Frank, as in a people who eventually inherited Western Europe from Rome and whom modern-day France is named after them. Arbogast will come back to the narrative. He's important. Just keep in mind that Theodosius is becoming increasingly anti-Bagan, while the West is essentially ruled by a Bagan. Before leaving the West, Theodosius issued his first anti-Bagan edict, a ban on all sacrifices, public or private, with all access to temples now prohibited. The edict was followed by further laws with detailed prohibitions on private pagan rituals. It is not clear what practical effects did the edict have in Egypt, where paganism was not traditionally expressed by animal sacrifice. Nonetheless, it did send a signal about the imperial policy toward pagans. As a result of those signals, Bobsyphilus requested to convert an abandoned temple into a church and his request was approved. As mentioned last week, the church as an institution was relatively poor, and there was a demand for churches as the number of converts increased daily. The abandoned temple of Dionysius was then taken over, and similar to what George did almost 30 years ago, Bobsyphilus took the pagan relics and mockingly berated them through the streets of Alexandria. And just like last time, a riot broke out. And this was a serious riot, with lots of casualties on both sides. Eventually, the pagan mob were cornered, so they took Christian hostages and barricaded themselves in the Temple of Serapis, which was essentially a fortress. The prefect and the docks of Egypt eventually showed up, but they realized that they were in a tough spot. They either have to protect the pagans from the mob, which would be obviously difficult, 
and the optics of the government protecting pagans who had just killed Christians is not great, especially given Theodosius's new policy, or participate with the mob in evicting the pagans from the temple, which will lead to a massacre of those pagans, as the rioters could not be restrained. A message was then sent to Theodosius, inquiring on what to do. Theodosius replied that the pagans should be pardoned and protected from the mob. The Christians who died in the riot shall be declared martyrs, and the temple of Serapis be destroyed. Then, and I'm going to quote Susamon, one of the sources for that event, when this imperial edict was read in public, the Christians uttered loud shouts of joy, because the emperor laid the abomination of what had occurred upon the pagans. The people who were guarding the temple of Serapis were so terrified at hearing those shouts that they took to flight, and the Christians immediately obtained positions of the spot, which they have retained ever since. The next day, the prefect and the pope rode side by side, followed by soldiers and monks. Almost in complete silence, the procession went up the great flight of 100 steps, which led to the temple. This was one of the greatest symbols of paganism, not only in Egypt, but in the whole Greek world. Serapis was the god of Alexandria for almost 600 years. Remember, this was the highly superstitious 4th century. Almost everyone truly believed that the Nile rose because of the gods. Plagues and wars were signs of their displeasure, and even the most devout Christian had enough superstition to boss before disrespecting the pagan gods. Would the rest of Serapis be bored on them when they finally entered the temple? Who would deliver the first strike? A soldier was ordered by the Pope to strike the first blow. A soldier is trained to obey. With a bit of hesitation, he did. A piece of the statue would shut. Nothing happened. The crowds cheered in joy and rushed to take part. Piece by piece, the temple of Serapis was leveled to the ground. In the meantime, many of the pagans of the city, who wished to stay pagans, escaped Alexandria. The chief leading man of the group that barricaded themselves in the temple, a philosopher named Olympias, traveled to Italy. Another prominent pagan ended up in the court of Arbogast as his poet. The destruction extended from Serapis to many other pagan temples in Alexandria and the rest of Egypt. Paganism, for all practical purposes, was dead in Egypt. Pagans were still be around. In a bit, a famous one named Hypatia would come to our narrative. But as a significant spiritual and a philosophical movement, it has ended. Now, the temple of Serapis had a library attached to it. So some confused this episode, and that library was the destruction of the Library of Alexandria. But these are completely two different events, about two different buildings. At least that's the mainstream historical view. With some historian even speculating that the library attached to the temple may have survived, as the destruction was somewhat orderly and contained. There are brief and confused mentions in the account of one pagan source, 
about the transfer of books from the main library to the Temple of Serebis, about ten years before the destruction of the temple. But no context or reason is given. Whatever the case, the educational scene of Alexandria will continue with expected ebbs and flow until the Arabs arrive in the 7th century, and even for a brief time after. The Nilometer, an instrument that measures the level of the Nile rising, and with huge religious symbolism for the Egyptians, were transferred from the temple to a church. The Nile rose to expected levels, to everyone's relief, which was taken as a sign of divine pleasure. After things calmed down, Bobsuphilus transferred a group of monks into the site and added the relics of St. John the Baptist and Elijah, thus transforming the site into a church, or more accurately, an urban monastery. This was one of the many ways he maintained his relationships with the monks. He became a hero to a significant portion of the monastic community from transforming the Temple of Serapis to a monastery. Further cementing his relationship with the monks, also around this time, he started ordaining monks as bishops, which was a new trend that would stick. The monks were as reliable as anyone could be to enforce Pope Zephilus' will, especially the ones from the lower socioeconomic status. However, some of the more influential ones had an independent streak, which, in next week's episode, we will go through. But for now, it was time for Bobsuifilis to resolve some international disputes and asserts the Church of Alexandria leading role. First was the Church of Antioch. The Church in Antioch was split into two factions for almost two generations now. The theology of the two factions was not that much different, especially after the Council of Constantinople. Theodosius tried to resolve it, but as a layman, one of the factions just refused to participate and foiled his efforts. Thus, Bobsuifilus was recruited to try to resolve the difficult dispute. This was the same dispute that St. Athanasius failed to resolve some 20 years earlier, so it was a diplomatic mission of the highest order. Prior to Bobsuifilus getting involved, two councils in Capua and Rome have pronounced two different results. Bobsuifilus then convened his own council in Alexandria, where a party of the dispute refused to attend. So Theophilus gives strong hints that he may depose Paul's bishops. A fourth council then took place in Caesarea, but Bobsuifilus could not attend, as this was the time he converted the Temple of Serapis into a monastery, and he could not leave at this critical time. Luckily, one of the bishops died naturally, and Pope Suifilus took the opportunity to strike a compromise and build an alliance with the Church of Antioch. He then used his influence to get the Church in Rome to recognize that bishop as the only bishop of Antioch, thus ending the split. The alliance between Antioch and Alexandria would be extremely vital as we move into our narrative, and it all started with Pope Suifilus. His diplomatic effort would pay dividends even to this day, and it is a shame that he is only remembered in the context of controversial issues he was part of. 
His skill as a diplomat in the vicious world of the 4th century is mostly forgotten about. He followed his success in Antioch with interventions in another disputed issue in Palestine. Again, he intervened successfully, and his reputation grew as a problem solver and a church canon expert. While things were going swimmingly for Theophilus, Theodosius was starting to have problems ruling a unified eastern and a western empire. While his anti-paganism edicts had made him a hero in Christian circles, the largely pagan Italian aristocrats and western officials were becoming resentful. Added to that is the expected tension between Valentinian II, who wanted to assert himself and move beyond being a figurehead emperor, and Arbogast, who did not feel like giving away his power. By 392 AD, Valentinian handed Arbogast a letter essentially firing him, to which Arbogast responded by ignoring him and informing him that he cannot fire him, as he did not appoint him in the first place. Shortly after, Valentinian was found hanging in his room. Arbogast told everyone who would listen that he did not do it, and it was a suicide. And many modern historians actually believe him. Arbogast's legitimacy was tied to Valentinian. If Valentinian died, Arbogast's position would be in danger. He knew that he would never be accepted as a ruler by the Romans because he was a barbarian. Thus, he needed a Roman to rule through him. Theodosius initially tried to make an effort to know what happened, but through the notorious palace intrigue and constant power struggles in Constantinople, mixed signals were being sent to Arbogast. Arbogast, in response, not wanting to get outmaneuvered by Theodosius, appointed a second-rank civil officer as another figurehead emperor. The appointment was clearly an effort on the part of Arbogast to get the Italian aristocrats on his side. He needed them to have any chance of success when Theodosius moves against him. The figurehead emperor was nominally a Christian, but really, everyone who mattered in Arbogast's government was a pagan. By 393 AD, Arbogast moved into Italy, and quickly, political and religious motives aligned, and the West Rebellion became a pagan revival. Temples were rapidly restored and rededicated, festivals celebrated, sacrifices performed, and the mystery cults revived. Theodosius still stayed in Constantinople, perhaps isolated at his palace and not knowing the extent of the problems of the West, or more likely making extensive preparations toward the eventual civil war. By 394 AD, the split became clearly religious, and holy war was on the horizon. As part of his preparation, Theodosius asked an Egyptian hermit, a monk named John, about whether he should pursue his war or not. John of Lyclopolis was based in Upper Egypt, as the name implies. He made his dwelling in a cave in the desert around the modern city of Asyut. By 394 AD, he was 90 years old, 40 of which he has spent in seclusion.
Presumably, he had the gift of prophecy, which naturally Pseudosius employed. John responded to Pseudosius' inquiry with something along the lines that Pseudosius will achieve victory with much bloodshed and his own deaths. John then died a few months after. The Christian emperor Pseudosius then proceeded to confront the pagan Arbogast in a battle that is to decide who and what should the empire worship. Now, a lot of that religious overtones were really propaganda, as both armies were made up of Goths and other Germanic tribes, who were either Aryans or pagans. But outside the rank-and-file soldiers for the average citizen of the empire, it was a battle of good versus evil, light versus darkness, true god or gods versus false one or ones. Both sides truly believed that they have divine blessings, and as such, no clever tactics or strategic maneuvers were applied. In the descent from the Alpine passes in the afternoon of September 5th, 394 AD, the banners of Christ met the banners of Jupiter. Theodosius' forces were routed, and his mostly Gothic army was decimated. Fortunately for him, night fell, and the armies were separated before a complete defeat. Celebrations and partying took over the Arbogast camp, while Theodosius spent the night in prayers and despair. In preparations for the next day, Arbogast sent a significant portion of his army to try and outflank Theodosius at night to prevent his escape when he is eventually defeated when the day breaks. But then, Theodosius' prayers paid off. First, he was visited by two heavenly riders, all in white, St. John and St. Philip, who told him to take courage. However, more concrete, the force sent to outflank his army signaled that they may be open to deserting Arbogast for the right price, which was naturally agreed to instantly. The next day, battle was joined once again, and again, Theodosius' forces were having trouble, until a miracle happened. It is hard to explain what happened in other words except bizarre and miracle. Cyclonic wind over 60 miles an hour suddenly appeared and they were blowing toward the army of Arbogast. Shields were being blown off and arrows shot in the direction of Theodosius' army were turning back toward where they were shot from. Now, with all the religious overtones surrounding the battle, the appearance of this phenomena had a huge psychological effect on both armies. What better sign from the divine can one ask for? To be fair, this wizard phenomena, called Bora, happens every now and then around the Alps. It results from air pressure differences where the cold mountain air rushes downward to the warmer plains. But for the 4th century soldier in the midst of the battle, nothing could have been more convincing that the old gods could not stand to the new religion. The figurehead emperor was executed, Arbogast committed suicide, and Theodosius entered Italy 
as a victorious Christian hero for the second time. To put the battle impact into perspective, I'm going to quote the modern historians Stephen Williams and Gerard Farrell. Quote, The moral impact of the prejudice with the miraculous intervention of the divine wind was very damaging to paganism. Both sides had seen this battle as a contest between their respective gods, and the decision was unequivocal. Educated pagans such as Claudian acknowledged divine intervention on the Christian side, and the Christian tradition naturally celebrated the great miracle thereafter. The process started by Constantine at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge had symbolically ended with Theodosius's Battle of the Frigidus River. Again, paganism did not die overnight, but the blow was huge and it was the beginning of the end. As Jean of Lycopolis predicted, within a couple of months of the battle, Theodosius had gotten sick, and John's prophecy seemed to be coming true. He called for his younger son, Honorus, to come to Milan to present him as the Augustus of the West. Arcadius, his older, stayed in Constantinople under a complicated whip of shifty advisors. He then entrusted another barbarian general named Stilicho to protect the dynasty and passed away in January 395 AD. So now we have the 10-year-old Honorius ruling the West as a figurehead under the protection of the general Stilicho and the 18-year-old Arcadius ruling the East a little bit more assertively but still a figurehead. The palace in Constantinople was a vicious place, filled with intrigue. Subawar usually rested in one of his advisors, until it finally rested with his wife, Empress Eudocia. Now, next week should be interesting. A new bishop of Constantinople, named John Chrysostom, will come to be. Eudocia and John would not get along, and Pope Theophilus would get right in the middle of their dispute. Pope Zophilus gets a really bad drip in popular history. His involvement in the fall of Serebis earned the scorn of the ancient pagan sources and the highly influential, more recent, Enlightenment historians, Gibbon being the prime example. But more important, his involvement in what happened to Jean Chrysostom earned him the scorn of the ancient Christian historian as well. Thus, everywhere you look, you'll find someone hating in Pope Zephilus. More recent scholarly work has balanced things a bit, and hopefully, next week, his actions regarding John Chrysostom and his views about origin would be better understood. Farewell, and until next week.